Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Play and like see what happens. Yeah. Did you? I did, just right then. Oh. It's been going for five seconds. Wow. Yeah. So we have pretty big egos. We, have, we love ourselves, basically. And, and we want to listen we to, ourselves, listen to talk. ourselves talk. What did you say? No, I really don't know. What did we want to talk about? Should we start over? No, no, no. no. Okay. Do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother. That's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. We're both into like true crimes. Uh, deathy murdery things. <laughs> Maybe that should be the title. Uh, <laughs> deathy murdery thing. Could be that. Could be something not that, because that sucks. That's going to be our theme song. It'll be just a silent recording of me going... I think I want you to go first this time. Cool. Mine's really cool. Yeah. Mine's crazy. It's like one of those ones where it's like, how did that even happen? You know? Ooh, I'm so excited. It's a mystery murdery thingy. It is a mystery murdery thingy. And that's what we decided to name our podcast. I think it's good. I think it's good too. Because I think I sent you it in a text, right? Yeah, yeah. You were just like, I don't even know what it was about, but it, you I said mystery murdery thingy. And I was right. like, bam, that's a good one. Sounds like a title of a it, podcast. It works. Yeah. It works. Right. It works. And we, we talked with my Aunt Susie earlier. She told her crazy stories. Yes. Having we, an encounter with a serial killer. So we will also attach that. Yeah, that will also be part of this. Um, yeah, so after me and Mario go. Uh, and I guess maybe we should try to do that more. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. If it I just up. feel like... I she feel had like that she story. Was, she had that story, yeah. And she was, just, she was, she was such a... A, like a good fit for right. it, right? And she had told us about it last Christmas. I know. I had yeah. been thinking about it like literally since then. No, me too. To have her record it. Me know. too. So, yeah, no, that's pretty cool. 
Okay, so the one I'm going to do is about Letitia Tovol, or Letitia Tovol, something. It's very French. So she, oh, and my um, main sources for this are the three ones that I got my info from are uh, Alan Boyle um, on Listverse, and then uh, a um, user named Helen Ayo on Reddit. Reddit. And then I think they mainly took their stuff from a, I think it was like a book, like a, an academic book um, printed by uh, Old Dominion University by Annette Finley Crosswhite and Gail, Key, uh, Gail K. Brunel. Okay. And they did like serious research into this, like death records. and Because it's, it's one of those ones where it's like kind of continues to reveal more and the number of people and kind of the whole conspiracy theory possibilities behind it grow and grow. Ah. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Okay, so here's the basic story. Uh, Letitia Thoreau, who was a, a young woman living in Paris um, in the, this is in the late 30s. This is May of 1937. So she boards a metro at the Port de Charenton station in Paris at 6.27 p.m. She's the only person in the carriage that when she gets in there. The wait, so wait, it was like a taxi service? No, 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 it's like a train. You know, like a oh, interstate, oh, like the oh. L in okay. Chicago, right? So basically she gets into the compartment. She's the only one in there. It's a first class like train compartment. And it gets to its next stop. And there's like differing accounts, but it's like forty five seconds to a minute later. And six passengers get on and they find her with a nine-inch dagger stuck <gasps> into her neck. What the No one else in there. What the fuck? No sign of anything. Except this dead woman who has a knife stuck into her neck and is already dead. So she didn't do it herself? Well, that's the thing. They All of what I read made it sound as if that couldn't have happened, but I was kind of wondering that too. So I don't think so. But that's kind of the whole mystery of it, is how, how could this have happened? And um, so, um, again, there's kind of differing accounts, but it's like three to six people got on at the next stop, which, again, was like a minute later. Um, and they all kind of agreed that it was about that amount of time. Um, and she was just found dead, and it's like, what, how, how could this have happened? So people start learning more and more about who she was. Um, and that's where kind of this mystery, conspiracy theory kind of aspect of it comes in. So she was actually um, Italian, and she had moved to Paris, and she worked in a glue factory. Um, but apparently that was not, that was kind of her one life, right? But she had a different double life, where she was uh, apparently like a spy. What? Maybe, or like an informant for the Parisian police. Um, so they found out, you know, by doing like the investigation into her, you know, ostensibly her murder, um, that she frequented seedy nightclubs and worked as a surveillance and message delivery specialist for a private detective agency. So they found out that she definitely did that. She had this like secret job as like a go between for uh, a private detective. She was also a paid informant of the Parisian police. So 
this is where, like, who could have done this? How could this have happened? This would have, if it did happen, you know, she didn't just kill herself. It would have had to have been, like, a trained assassin who was, you know, very, you know, had ways of doing these kind of things where, you know, who knows? Maybe there was a, a, a secret compartment Whoa. in the train. Um, because it, What it, the f- This could be, like... Some great spy movie action shit. Which I'm kind of, I kind of wonder actually if this has been made into a movie because it's apparently a pretty famous case. Yeah. Um. So they find out you know more and more about her. She was a paid informant for the Parisian police. Um. So obviously that stuff comes with a lot of enemies. You know she was informing on people. Um. She was also believed to have been having an affair with a man named uh, Gabriel Gentet. Uh, who was a prominent right-wing journalist, also an arms smuggler what? for the most powerful underground organization in Paris at the time, which was a, a terrorist group called the Comité Secret d'Action Révolutionnaire. That sounds so badass. Right. It's also, like, a reminder that terrorism didn't start with, like, 2001. Like, there, there were Irish terrorists, you know, in the 90s, and there were apparently French terrorists in the 30s, which I didn't really know about. Um, but uh, I guess it's part of this whole, like, you know, rise of the violent, you know, far right in all these different places. Because um, I think they had, like, connections with the, the Nazi party, too. I'm pretty sure. But maybe we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, if it did, actually. <laughs> if I'm actually remembering that right. So their nickname of this, like, group of the Comité Secret d'Action Révolutionnaire was uh, the Cagoul, which means the hooded, because they wore hoods to protect their identities, which sounds very much like, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, but there's like a video game. This that, is scary. Like, I, think, I think they might have been playing on that. I'm scared. So it's the, the hooded ones. <laughs> and apparently they waged a campaign of terror in an attempt to break trade unions and other left-leaning organizations, because they were like a far-right group. Um, they were responsible, the Kagul, for seven confirmed murders, two bombings, and the formation of a militia. So they were like a serious, you know, I mean, equivalent to what, you know, Al-Qaeda would be today. Like, they had an organization, they had, you know, a base, they were amassing arms. They didn't, and they weren't connected to any country's government? No. They were a terrorist organization. They were like a separate, you know, terroristic organization. Um, and they even stockpiled weapons and had built an underground prison. So it was pretty serious. You know, I mean, they were like a, a pretty serious group. And, um, and she was a part of that? Well, she was having an affair with a guy who was part of that group. Okay, okay. In addition to being an informant to the police... And working for a private eye. So she's basically a double agent. Yeah. She's working all sides. And um, as it kind of comes up more and more, it's like she seems like this like young, innocent, ingenue-type girl who just ha- happened to get you know caught up in all this stuff. But then as you find out more and more, it's like, oh, you know, she was kind of involved in all of it. Now, was she good or bad? Was she more involved with the police or more involved with the terrorists? I mean... Who knows, right? What but a she, life. yeah, she had a crazy life. Um, so in uh, nineteen thirty-seven, so the the same year that she was murdered, two members of the Kagul 
were placed under interrogation. They claimed that uh, Thoreau's murder, Letizia Thoreau's murder, had been committed by their chief assassin, Jean Filiol. Jean Filiol. Jean Filiol. So the Kabuls are... The Kagul. Kagul? Yeah, yeah. C-A-G-O-U-L-E. So that's one of the terrorist organizations. That's the terrorist organization. Okay. That was like their nickname. And their chief assassin was named Jean Filiol. And uh, these two guys, you know, they were like basically trying to get a better deal for themselves when they had gotten caught. So they, they flipped on him for, for Thoreau's murder. Um, one of the men later changed his story. And this is where it gets into like, man, it's really hard to know like what exactly happened. So one of them later changed his story and the other man had been beaten prior to giving the information. Oh. So, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to know, right? I mean, again, this is 1937. It's like, you know beating up prisoners and getting false confessions was kind of... I mean, obviously that still happens now, right? Brandon Dassey's still in jail, <laughs> for example. <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, that was a forced confession. But anyway, um, so it's really it's hard to know how good this information really was. But he's the kind of guy who could have done it, perhaps, because he was, like, you know, a famous world, you know, assassin, so maybe there's some way he could have pulled it off. Um, in World War II, uh, the investigation, you know, got basically cut off because, you know, the war was happening. They were invaded by the Germans, you know, like stuff wasn't really functioning in the, in the way that it was beforehand. So um, that's part of also why we'll never really know what happened because they, they, they didn't get to keep going with the investigation. And by the mid-40s, Filiol had fled to Spain, so they weren't able to, you know, interrogate him or anything. Um, there are other rumors that Thoreau was killed because she knew too much about a plot involving Mussolini, who was the, you know, um, I don't know what the prime minister or whatever it would have been, but, you know, the connected to Hitler and all that stuff, a uh, ruler of uh, Italy? Italy at the time. Um, the dagger in the neck technique was apparently popular with professional assassins from Italy. So they think it could have been maybe kind of a calling card. She was, again, if you remember, from from Italy originally. Yeah, yeah. So, again, we don't really know, but that's another kind of uh, piece of the puzzle, right? Um, but by the time police were in a position to resume the investigation, you know, 1946 or something, you know, <clears throat> almost 10 years after it had happened, um... There was just, you know, not a lot to go on. Um, too many, you know, obstacles to, to really uncover the truth in any, you know, way that we could really be sure of. But it's like a really mysterious, you know, murder that's still capturing people's imaginations. Um, There's got to be a movie. I would think so, right? I Honestly, I did not find out. <laughs> I probably could have found out. Was that, that out. not the first thing you thought of? That's, that was the first thing I thought of. No, the first thing I thought story. of was like, is this real? You know, but it seems like it was because, again, there was a, uh, an academic book written about it where these two women did, like, serious academic research. Um, so, in, and so some of those details, like the fact that it was, she was the only one in the compartment, the fact that it was only a minute later, those were, seemed like they were confirmed by, uh, by those as well. Um, one other weird thing is that French police 
have a seal on the files for the case until 2038. What? Yeah, until a year, a 101 years basically after it happened. Why? I have no idea. I mean, what have. I don't know. I mean, who could possibly still be around right now that would be implicated in that? Right. But, but see, this is again this kind of conspiracy theory aspect to this one too, where people think, well, maybe it was connected to somebody higher up, maybe you know in the police, and maybe their descendants still holds you know a lot of power, and they don't want things to come out. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of stuff that you can, you can have fun kind of playing around with, with, uh, with that as well. Um, I think that was pretty much it. Yeah. So it's, you know, just kind of this crazy thing. Um, yeah, 100 years, 101 years rather, and are not due to be released until 2038. Um, this is from the a uh, review of that book that I was talking about. Um, apparently, the two women who wrote the book uh, acquired legal derogations and gained access to many of the files, but only after signing a document in which they promised to never compromise the names of leading French families. Um, and some of the documents also were just gone, with no explanation. When they, when they were going through these files. But apparently they did get um, the ability to look at some of them. Apparently they also state that a French archivist warned them not to pursue that research. So it's like stuff that could still be, you know, at play like today, that maybe she was involved in, a, like you were saying, was she involved with these terrorists? you know, what kind of crazy stuff could that have been involved with? And, you know, then she also was involved with the police, you know, so it's it's just pretty crazy. Why would the records be sealed? Or exactly. Wait, which, which records were they? Just the records related to her murder and the investigation into okay. her murder. Okay. Right. Um, Isn't that like, to me, that's just glaringly obvious. That there's something else. There has to be. That's why I find this one really intriguing, because it's, like, truly a mystery. And it's hard to kind of, you know, even speculate as to what exactly that could be that um, is implicated, that, that could possibly still be in play up to today, up to now. Um, so anyway, just kind of as a last thing, uh, apparently they said in 1997 they went and tried to find her grave site. And it was on the outskirts of Paris, and they uh, they kind of stood there, and they vowed to tell her story and try to get like to the bottom of her murder. These two women who, who wrote the book about it, it was published by uh, ODU. And they say, you know, that she wasn't a heroine, um, but she embodied many of the complexities of interwar French society. So... It's kind of that thing that we talk about, you know, the lesser dead. And I think people would tend to put her in that camp because, oh, she's a harlot. She was hanging out in bars, you know. She was involved with all these people. But, I mean, she was a person. Like you said, she led this crazy, interesting life. You know, she deserves just as anyone else would to, like, have, get justice, even if it's 100 years later. Maybe we'll have to wait to that point. Um, but in 2002, apparently, the lease on her grave plot expired, 
and her body was exhumed and cremated. So just as kind of a footnote that that actually happened in 2002. And they hope in some sense that the publication of their book will reanimate and validate her existence and, and kind of keep her story alive. So yeah, that's yeah. the murder of Letitia Turo. Um, what? Can you hand me my Swedish fish? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here. Um, that was crazy. Yeah, I know. It's... I'm very determined to find a movie or something. About Letitia Turo. Yeah, I love her. Okay. I have this very glamorous picture of her in my in my mind. She would definitely be an interesting character. Who would play her? I think that's a good question. Oh, uh, Aubrey Plaza. Yes. It depends if you want to make it a comedy or not, or a serious action movie. Mm, so you don't think Aubrey Plaza could do serious? I know we haven't really seen that, but Aubrey Plaza, by the way, is um, the actress from uh, Parks and Recreation. Parks and Recreation. Chris Pratt's, uh, you know, wife. Wife in the show, mm-hmm. not in real life. Ew. Also, not on the Ferris anymore. Ew, you crush on me. <laughs> We're married, yeah, but <laughs> still, still. <laughs> not Amy Adams. Amy Adams. I love her. Yeah, but she'd have to dye her hair because French redhead. Well, like she's not French; she's Italian. But again, I don't care. Italian redhead. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> her hair is beautiful. Yeah. Or, um... How old was she? Was she pretty young? That's a good question. I think she was pretty young. I'm trying to remember. I don't think I have it written down, but I seem to recall that she was, like, in her 20s or 30, early 30s, maybe. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Hmm. Beyonce could do it. <laughs> Beyonce, <laughs> sure. I'm, honey, I'm so sorry, sweetie. Beyonce, I'm so sorry, sweetie. <laughs> That's some ugly bitch. Okay. Okay, what's yours? Are you ready? Yes. So, wow, I'm really excited. Hold on, let me get my computer back on. Okay. Um... So mine is titled The 2009 Taconic Parkway Crash. Um, okay, so I'll start off by saying uh, this, it's a little confusing, and that's why it's so, also why it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. And the timeline isn't really s- certain or consistent, but I try to, like, put it... I try to put it good. Put it together the best I could. Okay. Okay. So, Diane Schuler, 36, was a mother of two, a daughter and a son. On June 26th of 2009, she left the Hunter Lake campground in Parksville, New York, in her brother's car. Her brother's car was, was a red Ford Windstar, so it was just a red minivan. Uh, her husband took a separate car. He, like, took the dog and a separate car away from the campground. And she had a a car full of kids with her. It was her two-year-old daughter in the car, um, her five-year-old son, Brian, and her three nieces, nine-year-old Emma, seven-year-old Allison, and five-year-old Kate. And then, so this this huge crash happens. Um, 
she ended up she ended up going 85 miles an hour down the wrong side of the highway and she crashed head on into another car and those three all those three men in the other car died okay eight people died in this crash oh my God. eight people so it was two cars and half of them were kids or you said three cars Two, two cars. Just two cars. Okay. Two cars. Wow. And in the documentary where I got a lot of my in, in information, it's called Something's Wrong with Aunt Diane. It was so, so So good. the mystery here is, did she do it on purpose or was this an accident? The mystery is... Okay, just let me, let me keep reading. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, keep going. Um... So there was something wrong with her, but no one knew what it was. Uh, so the last time her brother, Warren Hence, heard her was when she called him at around 11.30 that morning to talk about the traffic. This is before they left the campground. 15 minutes after she hung up, she pulled over. It was a busy highway, so um, a lot of these details are done by witnesses who were there that day. Um, and there were witnesses saying that they, they saw her double over as if she was throwing up. And then after that, she stopped at a McDonald's and then a gas station. And the cameras at the gas station show her trying to buy pain relief medicine, possibly for her tooth pain, which we'll come in, we'll talk about later. Um, but the gas, the gas station didn't have any. So she was just in and out. And so... Uh, they're okay, so they're driving home after this camping trip. Diane supposedly pulls over, witness see her killing, blah, blah, blah. And then after this, the brother, Warren, gets a call from his daughter. Um, so one of the nieces who's in the, in the car. car who's her. in the car, yes. Um, she, says that Diane is, she says that Diane is having trouble speaking and seeing clearly. Warren tells them to get help and to stay where they are so he could come by and pick them up but she continued to drive. Uh, so here's, here's the kicker. By 1.30, two drivers had called 911 to report a minivan driving the wrong way on the one way to Connick State Park, Parkway. About five minutes later, the minivan collided head on with an SUV. At the time of the crash, Diane had been driving 85 miles an hour. Diane, her daughter, and two of her nieces were found dead at the scene, as well as three men who were in the silver Chevy Trailblazer SUV. 81-year-old Michael Bastardi, his 49-year-old son Guy Bastardi, and their best friend, 74-year-old Dan Longo. So Diane's son and her other niece were rushed, were rushed to the hospital where the niece died later that day and so the only survivor was Daniel was Diane's five-year-old son named Brian he ended up suffering severe brain damage um and he's he's ult he's ul ultimately okay but he has trouble seeing out of one of his eyes and seeing and identifying things in pictures and stuff like that so does he remember it happening was he able to tell them anything about would it happen? This is what he said. This is all they could get from him. Okay, yes, I remember that. The only way he could describe what happened was mommy's head hurt. Mommy couldn't see. 
And then I went flying like Superman. And he was five years old. He was five. Wow. Five years old. So all those deaths. And then Diane's autopsy revealed this is the this is the like jarring thing that we'll 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 talk sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, Diane's autopsy revealed a blood alcohol content of 0.19. Oh my god. Double the legal limit. Right. More than double the legal limit. Uh, and traces of THC in her system. This is the part that the grieving family refuses to believe. And that's why it's so sad. Wow. Because they would think it painted her in a bad picture. So according to her brother, Warren, Diane was completely sober when she left that morning, and I believe this as well. Other witnesses who talked to her that day, like the gas station employee and the campgrounds manager, both those witnesses said that she appeared sober. And uh, they had video of her going into McDonald's and going into the gas station, and she was perfectly normal. Um, and it was stated that she even had like an extended conversation with one of the cashiers. Um, so even though we have all these reports of her being looking sober, um, the autopsy says the other way around. And there were many, there were many, lots and lots of people saw this. It stopped, it stopped traffic for right. my like dead right. stop traffic. Yeah, I mean if someone's going 85 miles the wrong way down the highway. Yeah. Every, so yeah. um a absolute vodka bottle was found like uh, like a broken part of an a vodka bottle was found by the driver's the driver's seat inside of the car. Inside the car. Okay. So why was she driving 85 miles an hour on the wrong side of the parkway? No, that's the, that's also the mystery. For an extended period of time, right? I mean, you said it was... It was about... A few minutes? A or... mile and a half or something. Oh, so it wasn't actually... The, I guess you can't really go that far down the wrong side of the highway. Yeah, it was... I don't It was either... I felt like it was incredibly long, like five minutes. Hmm. But I don't know. I don't know. Um, she didn't crash immediately. Which is kind of no, crazy. No, And that's why all there were so many 911 calls all down that way. Which is kind of the weirdest thing to me because you would think if she were out of control and not doing it intentionally, then she would have crashed almost immediately. But if you're going intentionally the wrong way down the highway, maybe you, you would be in some sort of control, so maybe it would last longer. I never thought about that. But... So the, the family was in complete denial when it comes to Diane being intoxicated. So there then goes the entire investigation into this. Um, there were lawsuits filed against the Schulers for the seven people she killed in the crash. And the in-laws, who are going to be our most important people in the story, Daniel Schuler, which is Diane's husband, uh, they... Uh, they sued um, each other over the over the incident. Uh, wait, the in-laws, okay, and her, and then Diane's husband sued each other. Sued each other, yes. Okay. I'm sorry, I have to think about that. 
So there's also controversy within the family, especially Daniel. He and most of the other members of the family were shocked, and Daniel consistently denied that his wife ever drank to an excess. However, although this is this wasn't in his first initial story, um, he said that they had been drinking during their camping trip. They were not drinking that morning. Furthermore. Daniel said that his wife did smoke marijuana occasionally, but usually to help her with her insomnia or if she had pain. But Diane's sister-in-law, Jay, who was the mother of the three children that were killed in the crash, uh, she has also stands by Daniel and has really st strong feelings about the toxicology report that she made a policeman she made she made a statement to the police um, that Diane that Diane smoked marijuana on a regular basis. So it's kind of two conflicting things there. But that she didn't drink to excess on a regular no, basis. No, no. That was very odd. It was very out of character for her. Okay. Um. So obviously she was intoxicated, right? Right, I mean, they found the bottle in the car. They found the bottle in the car. Clearly, clearly she had been, like, chugging it Her as VAC she was driving. Her VAC was 0.19. The, t the amount of THC said she, that she could have smoked between 15 minutes and an hour before her death. Like, Which would have basically have, been, like, right before she Yeah, left. they have all this information. The family keeps pushing against this, and they say things like they want to believe that the crash happened due to a medical problem. Maybe Diane had a stroke while driving. Maybe she had a fever and the pain in her tooth was so bad that she became delirious. And so that's where this whole investigation is in that it's, in my opinion, obvious that she was intoxicated, but the family doesn't want to paint her that way. And that's why it's so sad. But even if you, I think, accept that clearly she was intoxicated, her, I mean, there's no other way for your blood alcohol level to be raised other than you drinking alcohol. That's just a scientific fact. But I think also the question is, like, why was she doing that? I mean, if she wasn't known to drink to excess regularly or to do things like this... Exactly. What made her do that? the little boy did say that... Right, he said her, her her head hurt. She couldn't see right. Yeah, I'm assuming well that's as, the kernel that they're kind of basing that on. As well as the daughter, who called Warren the brother and was like, "She's not hey, feeling well. She's not. Can you come get us?" But the post mortem, I'm assuming, didn't find an aneurysm or no. a, a tumor or no. anything of that nature. Nope. Nope. Which so, they certainly would have been able to find in an autopsy. So what happened was, uh. Daniel and his lawyer announced plans to retest the fluids. Uh, experts said that this was unlikely to reveal new information anyway because two different labs had come to the same conclusion about her reports. So there were a lot of frustrating things that happened during this time. Um, and Daniel and Jay were the driving force behind hiring a private investigator to look into the incident. Jay was, being the mother of the three children who yes, were killed. This, which is so, Diane, so insane. Which isn't crazy. Diane's sister-in-law. And really makes me believe then when they say that this is out of character for her. And it's, I mean, if your children were killed, I mean, I, I understand that 
maybe it's just because you can't accept that that couldn't have been some sort of crazy, you know, but you would think that if there were any indication that it was her fault that she would have, you know, been on that side. I don't think it was her fault. Right. I think it happened. It, obviously, she was intoxicated, but they even deny that. Right. So, okay. So they were the driving force behind hiring a private investigator to look into this. They spent thousands of dollars on an investigator named Tom Ruskin. They mainly got the money after HBO contacted them and asked to do a documentary right. on their story. The one that you um, Something's wrong with Anti Anne, yeah. And their ultimate goal with this private investigator was to retest um, the specimen, retest the fluids. Um, they wanted to retest the DNA as well to make sure that it matched. However, the family never got those reports. Like, they did all of these things to, to get the report, and they never got them. They Tom, chose not to get them. No, no, no. They couldn't contact the lawyer. Oh. Tom, the private investigator, I mean. Tom Ruskin hadn't been heard from, and he wasn't answering calls. So sometime later, HBO contacted the lab for them. They did, they, HBO, like, got access to it. And they, and they asked for Diane's fluids to, to be tested. Um, but the medical center said that the results had already been, that these results had already been sent to a, another lab nine months earlier by Tom Ruskin. So he did send off the DNA. To, he did send off to get it tested. And then he just But there kind was of... some disconnect, and then they couldn't contact him at all. So a HBO also helps Jay and Daniel obtain medical records that they struggled to find themselves, which was, yeah. They look at her dental records, and they find that Diane had an abscess on the tooth. So both members of the family stated that Diane would had lately been rubbing the side of her face, but she told people that she was fine, and she was one of those... That was the type of person she was. She was private, personally. It would always, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, but the death was officially ruled a homicide because the victims were killed due to her negligent wow. driving. Was it intentional? What? Right. And I, I believe it wasn't. So the Bastardis were, of course they were like, they were furious and hurt that Daniel continued to de deny his wife's sure. intoxication. The Bastardis were the, uh, there her were three parents. people. No, the Bastardis are the three people in the other car that died. Oh, right, right, right. So two of the Bastardis, a father and son, and then their friend. Their friend. David Long or Don Long or something like that. Right. Longo. David Longo. 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 Dan Longo? Whatever. Um, Mr. Longo. Longo. <laughs> uh, so did they sue yeah. them as well? Yeah. Just kind of everybody suing everybody. Yes. In Diane's brother was sued by a sister who had lost, who, yeah, who had lost three daughters due to the crash. Diane, or Daniel, sued the state of New York for not keeping the roads safe and also sued Warren Hans, who was Diane's brother. None of these suits ever went anywhere, I'm assuming. Yeah, because he was the owner of the car. So the Bastardis filed a lawsuit against Diane and her brother seeking charges for wanton, willful, and reckless conduct. So basically, everybody's grieving and, like you said, suing each other. Mm -hmm. So, And by 2014, all the lawsuits by both parties were either settled or dropped. So here's the two theories. The obvious one that I feel 
the Schulers can't bring themselves to believe is that Diane was drunk and high, hence the reason for the erratic driving. Why was she, why she was intoxicated, who knows? I think, it's, I think it's possible that her tooth hurt so bad it was driving her nuts and she needed relief. And right. she had that thing right there. And the, thing that, the moment yeah. she had was weed, you know? And this wasn't the first time she would do something like this for pain. She was basically self-medicating and yeah. went awry. Yeah. She saw, like, yeah, I agree. I she saw the alcohol likely. in the car and she started drinking that too. So right. at this point, she wasn't even thinking clearly because she's in so much pain. And then they talked about the idea of um, delirium. Mm-hmm. And that's what all of this developed into. Hmm. Interesting. I could definitely see that. I mean, if you have an abscess and you're in... I mean, tooth pain is some of the most intense pain possible, I've, I've heard. I had a... Comparative to, you know, uh, childbirth or getting shot with a shotgun in the knees or, you know, I mean, really the most intense kinds of pains that it's possible to feel. Yeah, I had a dry socket in my, when I got my wisdom teeth taken Mm -hmm. out, and it was the most pain I've ever been in my entire life, like, to this day. Yeah, when when I had my, um, well, right before I had um, my uh, root canal, uh, that was definitely the most intense pain I've ever felt. I had to spend a whole weekend with that, and yeah, I could if if you let that go on for weeks or months or something. I mean, they don't and really that's... know how long it was going on, right? With her, I mean, if it had abscessed, it must have been developing for at least a while. Yeah, and she was always like dismissive, of right? These types of things. she wasn't prone to go seek medical yeah. attention, so I could definitely see that. Yeah. So another theory is that. Diane actually did have something else going on medically. Like, perhaps the abscess tooth had something to do with it. Right. Some kind of attack. But And Jay and Daniel, tri- Jay and Daniel tried to justify and say that she could have had a stroke or another, or another medical reaction to something. But they got the one of the most respected medical examiners in the nation to come in to talk to them. Um, I don't have his name written here. I forgot his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was looking at these results, and he said, I wish you peace. I hope you find peace. Because he couldn't say to them, like, that's not possible in this situation. Sure. And, you know, I was just thinking, too, if she had some kind of underlying psychological issue, maybe there's no way to even know postmortem you know, what that might have been. Yeah. So maybe she was suffering from something else and then the abscess tooth and it all kind of contributed to her psychosis or temporary psychosis or something. Yeah. Crazy, right? It's really crazy. And again, another one where it's like, you can't ever really know. And those poor, poor babies. And the three other men, I mean. And the three other men. Yeah, they were like older, but you know, still... But, but yeah, that's they, just so they, insane. In the documentary, they talked to David Long's family, and he was seventy. He was a seventy-four, and they're like, and his brother was like, he had a lot of life left to live. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's all very tragic. Yeah. And then the grieving family that can't let go is like the most tragic. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I got very aggressive about that one moment. I was like, but. No, 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 that's not that's not what happened. Yeah. <laughs> we know this. We have proof of this. Right. But 
And it's yes, not... You can understand their denial. I know, exactly. That's the why it's like... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But... Crazy. Eight, eight people. Yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. Okay, we're recording. Okay, so... You have a story for us. Yes. It's a rather spooky story, but... It's true. It's very good. And this was back in the... 1977. 77, okay. Mm-hmm. My uh, ex-husband and I were living in Florida along the Gold Coast. Um, he had a job uh, working as a carpenter with a small construction company owned by a gentleman named Chris. And uh, we got to know them pretty well, him and his wife. Well, we thought it was his wife. We even went to their house to visit, and she raised show dogs. He was very personable, very charming. So we felt like we knew him pretty well. My, my ex worked for him for about six months, making good money. I was a stay-at-home wife, and he'd go to work. Well, Chris was going to open a little um, cafe uh, near Boca Raton and uh, asked my husband if I'd like to work there as a hostess. So. We went to the little cafe, they were just building it. We were discussing the particulars of the job, that I'd be a hostess, and it was a really a upper-end place. Mm-hmm. So he was wondering <clears throat> if I had any nice clothes. Because you know, back in the 70s, we were hippies. I just wore t-shirt and jeans all the time. Mm-hmm. And so we said, yeah, you know, I had some nice things I could wear. And he suggested that he will come by our place sometime and check out our ward- my wardrobe. Now I was 19 at the time and very naive, and we knew him very well, we thought. So, yeah. okay, yeah, come on over sometime. Well, about a week or so went by, and one day uh, my ex was sent to work at a location much further away than he normally worked. Which was up to Chris, right? Yeah. Where, where he worked. Yeah, Chris sent him to work at another location further away. We didn't think anything of it. It's just a normal day. And during the day, uh, there was a knock at the door, so I went to answer, and it was Chris. Of course, he knew that my ex was gone further away and very pleasant. Hi, just came to to visit. I said I wanted to check your wardrobe out, so I thought I'd come by. And I said, sure, come on in, you know. We were living in a little mobile home, living room at one end, and then the hallway down the side of the trailer with the bathroom and the bedroom at the end. And he says, well, yeah, I'll come by to check out your wardrobe. What kind of nice clothes do you have? And so I went to my bedroom, and I got a couple of outfits. One was a real cute, you know, little black dress, halter with ruffle around the neck. And he says, uh, well, what would that look like on? Now, I'm 19 and very naive, newly married, and we knew him. Right. So I said, well, I'll go put it on. So I went to my room, and I put it on, came back to the living room, and he's still sitting there. And he asks well, what would you do if you had to wear something without a bra? And at that moment, I snapped. Okay, I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what I said, but it was more or less, don't you worry about it. I can take care of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was sitting on the sofa across the room from the door, and I was standing between him and the door. And when I said that, his attitude and demeanor changed dramatically. Got very silent. Then he stood up and walked past me, mumbling to himself, can't do it, I just can't do it. Rico's just too good a worker and I can't lose him, I can't do it. And he left. 
It was shortly after that, we decided to move and my ex quit the job. Everything was fine, you know, as far as the job and Chris and all. So left the job and we moved to Houston. Uh, we went back to Florida a year or so later to visit family and uh, a brother-in-law over there was also in construction and he asked us, well, did you hear about Chris? What happened? No, we don't know. What, what happened? He says, well, they're calling him the pizza man. Supposedly he's going into malls and getting young girls uh, uh, to talk to him, telling them that he's a photographer and he can get them modeling gigs. Classic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he would put something on the pizza he bought them that would knock them out, and then he would <gasps> rape them. He would buy them pizza and then... Uh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we're freaking out. It's like, oh, my God, you know, you used to work for this guy. That's horrible. So vacation is over. We go back to Houston. A year or so later... I'm listening to the radio and I start hearing his name, Chris Wilder. Chris Wilder is on the FBI 10 most wanted list. They're looking for him for abduction, torture, and murder of women. And on the radio, I didn't quite snap. The name didn't really you know, snap with me. And then it came across the TV, FBI 10 most wanted. They're looking for Chris Wilder. It was an active manhunt. And I saw him on the television and I'm like freaking out, oh my God. So I called my ex and talked to him about it. And yeah, it was Chris Wilder that my ex worked for in Florida. And uh, if you go to FBI uh, 10 Most Wanted, you look it up and look for Chris Wilder, you can see the show about him, about all the, he'd been abducting women for years, torturing them horribly, raping and murdering them all along the Gulf Coast. He was originally from Australia, and I believe hmm. he raped and killed some women in Australia also. Yeah, so he, he was like a big-time serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. And he was in my house. And luckily, I think what it was is uh, one of the shows, they said something about he liked docile women. He liked mm -hmm. women that he could control easily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you gave go. him that pushback, there and he basically backed down. Yeah, I gave him the pushback, and I guess he decided it would be too much trouble, and he left. But I'll never forget what mm -hmm. he said as he passed me. Right. Can't do it. Just can't do it. Rico's too good a worker. Can't lose him. So creepy. But it's interesting, because, you know, like, psychopaths, they're able to turn it off and on like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, there was just that moment and you everything shifted. And yeah. I, I feel like I've heard that before, you know, where it's like somebody's super nice, almost too nice, yeah. you know, really, really engaging. Mm -hmm. And then you give them that trigger, mm -hmm. you push back on what they don't want, and then suddenly they're the meanest, coldest, heartless person. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it was weird. It was like a, just a change in the air of the room when... When he shifted, right, and and then left, and thank God he left, right, right, because I mean it was just the two of you there. Yeah. So did you end up working at the restaurant? No, we left about two weeks after. That. Oh, so you left like really recently? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we moved to Houston then. Right. And Houston is where I saw him on TV, and it's like, oh my God, that's the guy you worked for. And then they caught him, right? He ended up going no. to jail, or no, what, what no, 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 no. He was happened? at the border, right? They were. He was headed to the uh, Canadian border. Right. There was a young girl about 16. He had abducted, um, I think, two or three weeks previously, who was helping him. She was, what do they call that? Um, 
Stockholm, a friend, a Stockholm friend, Syndrome. Oh, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he had convinced her to help him abduct wow. other women. And towards the end, I guess he fell in love with her. He gave her airplane tickets and sent her back home to her mother. And that's how they knew what he was driving. She, she told him and they started looking for him. He was headed for the Canadian border. Uh, FBI agents spotted him and approached him at a gas station. Uh, he reached into his car and the FBI agent kind of jumped on his back to try to stop him. He took his gun and shot himself in the chest and the bullet went through him and into the FBI agent. The FBI agent didn't die, but he did. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Isn't that creepy? It's so creepy. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So if you're young and naive, do not be too trusting. And stay sexy. Don't get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> That's the the tagline from the the, oh, the murder yeah, podcast that we podcast. like to listen to. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. But they've told stories like that too, where they were even like younger. And the guy, you know, would be like, oh, I'm a photographer. Oh, you could be a model, you know, come meet me out in this, in, de- you know, desolate whatever location out in the middle of nowhere, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you do. And then yeah, sometimes you don't get murdered. <laughs> sometimes you do. Yeah, and I was young then. I mm-hmm. was 19. I was cute. But old enough to feel like, oh, I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. You know, I can take care of myself. I, can, I know this guy. He's a friend of ours. Right. You know, uh-huh. I don't have to worry about him. Yeah. But it's so weird that he, he let her go, too, the that girl, you know, later. Because um, I feel like I've heard that, too, where these serial killers will get emotionally attached to the one victim mm-hmm. and then not kill them and let them go. So mm-hmm. she's like, still around? I believe. So, I mean, supposedly, you know. Probably. Yeah, well, he didn't kill her. Right. So, yeah. And she was only about 16 at the time. This was... Uh, 70. So she'd be younger than you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, much younger than me. Uh, George was around, so that was 83. I think it was around 83, but I could be wrong on the date. So he went on for a while. Many years after that. And you said even, they think, before in Australia. Yeah, he killed women before me, and he killed many after me. But he didn't kill me. Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> We're happy about that. Yeah, me too. That's a good thing. Anyway, that's a really good story. <laughs> oh my God. I've always wanted to tell it, and this is kind of nice to do it on a public forum. Yeah. Yeah. And his name's Chris Wilder, FBI 10 Most Wanted List. Look it up on YouTube. Does that's he have his own episode? Yes. We, yeah, we watched it. Oh, I didn't see I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. We need to yeah, watch, we should it. watch it. Yeah, yeah. We could go downstairs, watch it with everybody. Let's do it. Let's go okay. downstairs right now. All right. Bye. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we're gonna tr- we're gonna try this a few more times and then. Just yeah, put it on YouTube. Put it out. Put it do out it. there. Just uh. Just uh. Pretty, 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 pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Mm, but, uh, good job by you. <laughs> Good job by you, Billy. Oh my God. <laughs> I told you it's what I'm going to say at the end. Yeah, you said. Good job by you, Chloe. <laughs> no, that was creepy. <laughs> Never. Hey, it's supposed to be kind of creepy, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.